The following content is explicit. It's Monday, May 20th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Over the weekend, billionaire Robert Smith told the graduating class of Morehouse University that all debt will be forgiven. In what could be interpreted as a blatant attempt to take off the table, one very large aspect of the Elizabeth Warren agenda might have appealed to the 396 members of the graduating class who would each have owed up to $10,000 in loans. And my family is making a grant to eliminate their student loans. This is, of course, a great and generous offer stipulated. However, have you ever noticed that about half of the supposedly magnanimous, life-changing, reality-redefining acts of generosity that are held and celebrated in America are what would be in a decent society the stuff that we'd give to our citizens as a matter of course. Like that TV show, Undercover Boss, where a CEO dons a name tag and a fake mustache and tells an $11 an hour employee that he'll pay for her to go to school or get some surgery. Here was one undercover boss, Mitch Modell, of the sporting goods company Modell's, who bestowed his favors upon a truck driver. You have opened my eyes about the tremendous turnover we had in truck drivers. And I love your suggestion that we should have different pay scales. If the company is expecting someone to have them wake up at 3 in the morning or drive a truck at midnight. Yeah, why don't they compensate them for that? So we're going to be looking at that and changing it immediately. Because of you. That's good, you know? I mean, I guess I did my part. So a time differential pay based on working at 3 a.m., which is exactly what my unionized job mandated. Models would also have, or have to, if they were unionized. Your reward is that my business doesn't lose so many truck drivers, which when you think about it, helps me, doesn't it? Then the owner of the Golden Crust chain of restaurants drew upon his experience of slipping in a warehouse to generously address the issue of workplace safety. Don't walk on ice. That's an iceberg. Yeah, yeah that is an iceberg. Yeah. <laughs> whoa, 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 no, no. <laughs> we can laugh about it now, but it yeah, was, yeah, but it, it, but it was it, really, it, it really, could have been bad. Yeah, you could have been hurt. That is something that I've instructed my crew to fix. A workplace that won't disable me as the worker? That's pretty kind of you, sir. And then there is this example of what should be basic decency that's being sold to us as charity. It's the tearful military reunion. We have seen it so often, a soldier or Marine or airman honored at a stadium jumbotron, sending word supposedly from a war zone, telling his family to hang in there. He'll be home soon. Only guess what? He actually is back from the war zone. He's right there in the stadium. And we all get a little adrenaline surge because this father of three isn't, you know, dead in a never-ending war we didn't need to get into in the first place. Here's one from a Carolina Panthers home game. Welcome back, Captain Jorgensen. Andrea, we hope you and the kids enjoy catching up with Joe. As all of you enjoy watching today's game from one of our luxury suites, congratulations and thank you for your dedicated service to our country. And while in your luxury suite, be sure to eat all the armor hot dogs you can, which will make up for the up-armored SUV you had to go without 
in your first few years in theater. I feel an emotional surge for these individuals too. But do we have a mechanism other than charity to grant these acts of kindness? I think we do. And it is called public policy. Now, that wouldn't make the news. Well, actually, it would make the news. It would just be in the section of the news that covers tense, divisive, debatable things and not the uplifting we can all get behind it. And in some cases, sell network television commercials against it sort of thing. Think about the amount of free publicity CBS gives to a boss who goes undercover and what tiny percentage of that goes into raises or gifts the grandee bestows upon one or two employees who are probably not even compensated for being characters in a network television show. I wonder if the under I wonder if the undercover boss concept would play in Scandinavia. I'm going to pay you for your grandma's operation. I'm going to let you go to college for free, and I'm not going to stick you in a war zone. Do you want to know why? Is it because you're the generous CEO of a Fortune 500 company? No, you idiot. I'm the minister of public health. We all get this. So I guess in the U.S. we made a deal. We deliver subpar public services, but that opens up impressive corporate branding opportunities when the goods and services denied to the many are granted to the few. What a country. And by the way, I did look it up. They do have an undercover boss in Norway. I den sammanhangen då så gick jag då undercover för att se hur dan det jobbet och hur du gör jobben din. And it was canceled after one season. On the show today, I talk about a review written by a past just guest of a book written by a very very recent past just guest. It was not a good review. It caused some upheaval, you might say. But first, Josh Levine is a guy who I've known for quite a while, and I have to tell you, he's nice. But more than that, he is a great writer and journalist who has written a biography of a woman who didn't want to be known. Linda Taylor was born a poor black girl in the South in 1926, and then she went her entire life trying to obscure all of those things. She was vilified by Ronald Reagan, and she was called the welfare queen. She might have been a bit less than a queen, but a lot worse than just the welfare queen. Josh Levine, author of The Queen, up next. Hey, listener, you may have heard via your earbuds, car stereo, smart speaker, or immersive shower sound system that podcasts are the future. We at Slate think so, too, which is why we are hosting Slate Day in New York City on Saturday, June 8th. And it won't just be stuffy panels. Oh, but it'll be them, too. The day starts with a performance by Ms. Cracker of RuPaul's Drag Race fame. We've got pop culture trivia where you can join Slate's own writers. A play date for kids organized by our parenting podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting and You Know Hit Parade, that podcast about the biggest hits in pop and music. They are going to have a dance party. Of course, we will have panels too, including mine, titled The Art of Podcasting with Mike Pesca. I'll be asking questions to the people who usually ask questions in this, the podcast industry. I can't wait for it. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets. See you Saturday, June 8th. Josh Levine, the national editor of a publication called Slate Magazine, has put together a fascinating compendium where he takes various female criminals and talks about all their crimes. Like, he writes about a kidnapper and then a cattle rustler and a, a we'll say alleged, but I'm going to say probable murderer and uh, a refrigerator thief. But the thing is, they're actually all the same person. 
The name of the book is The Queen, and the crime you may know her for is being a welfare cheat. Well, Josh jumped in on that allegation, which was made famous by Ronald Reagan, and what resulted came to dominate his life in a fascinating, fascinating book. Hello, Josh. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Mike. It's so rare that you can write about somebody who steals both refrigerators and cattle Yeah, in the same book. And the public imagination. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Although I could see the two uh, correlating. Like if you steal a cattle, you're not going to be able to eat it all that day. So what are you going to do? What do you need? (laughs) You need a good refrigerator. She was clever. Yeah. When you first wrote this as a very long, engaging article for Slate, the impetus was what? Tracking down Reagan's claims? The impetus was I was looking for a long story to write. Yeah. Um, the other impetus was this was around the time of the 2012 election when the idea first came up. And there was this talk, you might remember, the Mitt Romney fundraiser was secretly taped and that got leaked to Mother Jones. And there were the comments about 47% of people are just lazy and want things given to them and will never vote Republican. And so this was kind of the latest iteration of the trope that that Reagan kind of inaugurated, the welfare queen trope uh, in 1976. And so that was the occasion to look back and think about how that got started, who was the actual person behind it. And and that right there tells you the difference between Reagan's skill as a politician and Romney's in that Reagan pointed to one boogeyman-type person who almost all of America could say, well, that's not me, whereas Romney was literally talking about almost half of America. Right, yeah, Reagan wasn't, he wasn't implicating his voters, and he wasn't really, yeah, I think you're right, implicating anyone except for the people that were the most vulnerable and maybe the least represented by politicians at the time. And these were like primarily poor black women. And the people in these crowds at these rallies, I think, were primed to be angry at the folks that they thought Reagan was talking about, people who were getting stuff that they didn't deserve, whereas, you know, they were hardworking taxpayers um, who, you know, there was inflation and their paychecks weren't paying for as much as they used to. And so obviously, you know, somebody was to blame and let's, you know, let's blame those people. So in the time from when Reagan started talking about it, and it was actually during the 76 campaign when he uh, came close to getting the nomination from Ford, um, in the time when he started talking about it till when you reported it, there were cycles where it was reported in credible publications that it was total myth, that it had been discredited. But when you picked up the thread, what was sort of the state of knowledge about the reality of there even being a person who was this welfare queen and what we knew about the person? So the trail on on Taylor kind of went, Cold after she went on trial for welfare fraud in nineteen. 19- and is your character Linda Taylor? Yeah, in in nineteen seventy seven. So she goes on trial, she gets convicted, she goes to prison, and then she essentially ceases to exist, not only as a public figure but in the public imagination. She's replaced by this caricature of the welfare queen, and it's not really remembered that she was the model for it. She had been so kind of removed from public consciousness that it took me like a year when I first started 
reporting the story to even figure out that she was dead. Like, nobody knew. Mm -hmm. And so if you look back at the coverage, as I did, from the mid-'70s, she's talked about as a real person who did real things. But then the coverage later sort of gets referred back to, but only in reference to Reagan, Reagan's welfare queen. Reagan said this or said that. And that was what was so fascinating to me. So somebody, there's this ample public record about them. You could still erase that person or have that person be erased in that comprehensive of a way. Right. And so you came to conclude through a lot of methods, including reading the original reporting about her, but also talking to the people who put together the case. You came to conclude that she really was what we could call a welfare cheat. Queen, I don't know, but she built the system for tens of thousands of dollars, fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Reagan said $150,000 in a single year. That was his campaign line, but it wasn't that much. What you know, The best estimate that I found was maybe 40,000 over like a longer period of years uh, in Illinois. So that was like a decent chunk of change. She was certainly cheating the welfare system. Um, but the way she was touted, it's, this is the biggest welfare cheat of all time, the biggest fraud in all the 50 states. But the societal harm she did, I'm not only going to say didn't stop there. I would venture to say, based on your reporting, it was far, far from the worst thing that she did. Yeah, definitely. So... As she was out on bail after getting indicted for welfare fraud, she moves into a friend's house, this woman, Patricia Parks, who lived in Chicago. And over a period of months, Patricia Parks starts getting sicker. Also over that same period of months, Patricia Parks signs over her home, makes Taylor the executor of her estate. And then Patricia Parks dies. Um, She's found of overdosed on barbiturates. Taylor is kind of the only suspect, logically. There's widespread belief, it seemed, that she had done it. But the prosecutor, the same guy who prosecuted her for welfare fraud, decides ultimately that he doesn't have enough evidence to charge her. He didn't think he could win a conviction. And this is only one of many different pretty heinous crimes that she was connected to and, you know, I believe involved in. Tell me about the kidnapping. So there are a bunch or of kidnappings. Maybe I say kidnappings. <laughs> a bunch yeah. of kidnappings, Mike. She was actually officially kids, char- kids napping. She was officially charged with kidnapping in Chicago in 1967. A, a girl had been left in her care, and she refused to give the child back. Which um, that's kidnapping. That counts. <laughs> um, but again, she wasn't uh, prosecuted for that. I, I concluded that a lot of the reason why this stuff didn't stick to her was because the welfare fraud stuff, accusations, and the welfare queen nickname was just so powerful that it overwhelmed everything else. Like you see all these politicians and not just Reagan, local politicians, you see the coverage in the Tribune, the level of outrage about the welfare fraud. And then when the other crimes, you know, whether it was homicide or or other stuff, when it gets mentioned, there's like nobody publicly you know, on the stump or no column, crusading columnist saying, we've, you know, we have like a potential murder on our hands. Like, nope, it just gets mentioned in passing as like an aside. And then they just get back to, to the welfare like the next day. So is the theory, is your theory that uh, when it comes to the welfare stuff, it's perhaps a confounding mix of she did it, but also a lot of racism in pointing fingers. But when it comes to 
her possibly committing crimes since her victims were also people of color. Then the racism kicks in in terms of ignoring the severity of those crimes. Or is it something else that that the narrative of welfare queen gets complicated by these other more serious crimes and it flummoxes or stymies would-be prosecutors and investigators? I would say that for Ronald Reagan, it's certainly not useful to him to mention in a campaign speech, she used 80 names, she stole $150,000 and in welfare in single year, and she killed someone. It's like, that's just muddy, muddy the water. It's confusing. <laughs> Dude, you're burying the lead. The man knows how to tell an anecdote, and that ain't it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and if the point of these stories about her, which, and I believe this, this was the point, um, is to say the welfare system is being besieged by people like this, then you want to make it sound outrageous you want to make people angry about it, but you also want to make it seem like kind of typical at the same time. And there was nothing typical about Linda Taylor. And so the stuff that was atypical gets kind of sanded off and and smoothed down because you want her to represent this larger group. You want to convince people are cheating the system that are are lazy and are getting stuff that doesn't belong to them. You want her to, to represent that group, and she's just not representative. Okay, but in 1975, if you're a local prosecutor is looking at this uh, possible barbiturate overdose case, are you really influenced by Ronald Reagan? It seems like there are other people along the way who were just, I don't know, I'm not going to say bad cops. It's Law enforcement seemed tougher then. It was easier to get away from with crimes. You could change your name, and everyone would be really confused, and it could work for a long time. Well... You know, a Tribune reporter at the time, a black reporter, told me that the paper just wouldn't cover murders of black people in the city. It just wasn't considered that extraordinary of a thing to happen, which is an indictment of the Tribune, certainly, whereas her welfare fraud was considered extraordinary and was considered interesting because it was unusual. And so... I do think that there was political pressure to prosecute her for the welfare fraud. I know that there was political pressure once it was publicized. There was no political pressure to prosecute her for anything else. And so you could argue that the prosecutor made a decision in that case that was uninfluenced by politics. And he thought, you know what? It'll be hard to get a conviction even if I think that she did it. And so I'm just going to bring the case that I think – I should win. There's some logic to it, even if we you don't have to necessarily agree with that logic. Right. And uh, the woman that she is alleged to have killed, you talk to you talk to her family members who definitely think that Linda Taylor did it and escaped punishment. Yeah, Patricia Parks's ex-husband told me, you waited a long time to come here. You being like any journalist, nobody had come to talk to him or interview him or ask him about what had happened. Um, Patricia's daughter actually lived through it. She was in the house at the time and watched this happen, and nobody had talked to her. She suffered from poor care by Linda Taylor, in fact. Yeah, nobody had talked to her. And so on the one hand, you have Linda Taylor getting this extraordinary amount of attention and being kind of demonized for the wrong thing. And that demonization leads to 
this really vicious stereotype being created that implicates all these people that don't deserve it, like poor black women on welfare. And then on the other side, you have these, you know, this black family, and they told me like the reason that nobody cared about this was because Patricia Parks was black. It was really sad. It's really sad. Let me just ask you about Linda Taylor. She seems a combination of clever, and yet at the same time, she also seems sloppy. She didn't get away with a lot of her crimes, I don't think. Even though she was said to live high on the hog, it seemed like the hog would often have lean years. Assess her skills as a criminal, would you? Her number one skill as a criminal was her shamelessness. On welfare, for example, she would put on these forms that she had twins and triplets like five or six months apart. And if somebody was paying attention, as the intake worker was in this case, you would catch it and you wouldn't give her you know, what she had, she had asked for. But she also had the ability to present herself as a person who other people wanted to be with, at least temporarily. She knew how to appeal to children, to men, to women, to old people. Usually when you read about con artists, they'll specialize in a particular group, right? Like somebody will prey on the old or it'll be a woman who preys on men. She was very versatile in that regard. And she was also versatile and, you know, she would present herself as a heart surgeon. She would present herself (laughs) as um, a psychic. Sometimes I wonder, and this is more an indictment of society, but if you took those skills and channeled them in the right direction, she probably could have forget benefit society, like just lived a lot better life and caused a lot less damage. Well, another thing um, that I found in my reporting that was really sad is that because of her race growing up, she was denied an education. She grew up in the Jim Crow South, Mm -hmm. wasn't able or allowed to go to school at all. And I'm not saying that if she had been given those opportunities, she would have been a good person. I don't think the evidence points in that direction, but I think her life would have been a lot different. You know, her her life was clearly shaped by the indignities that she suffered growing up. Josh Levine is the author of The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth. He is also the host of a podcast on the uh, Slate Audio Network called The Queen. Thanks, Josh. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Jared Diamond is a noted polymath, but he just had his figures double-checked, and they did not stand up to scrutiny. Writing in a review in the New York Times, the writer Anand Giridharadas found facts that were off, dates that were wrong, and assumptions that he said did not hold up. Giridharadas said the book was riddled with errors. He wrote, quote, Diamond gets wrong the year of the Brexit vote. He claims that under President Ronald Reagan, government shutdowns were non-existent, but they occurred a number of times. He describes Australian rules football as a sport invented in Australia and played nowhere else, but it is played elsewhere in Nauru, where it is the national sport, as well as China, Canada, France, Japan, Ireland, and the United States. Now, Diamond, who was Thursday's gist guest, is to my eyes a brilliant thinker, but sometimes one whose argument veers from the rock solid to the eh, tenuous. And it's not just because of facts. I read Diamond's book 
or I read Diamond's book, Upheaval, not for the thesis, and the thesis is that countries go through crises like people go through crises. That's kind of a stretch. But the case studies were illuminating. Just his chapter on Finland was really interesting and factual, as far as I could tell. I also came across, I have to admit, some sloppy treatment of the facts. I actually mentioned this to Diamond in the uh, chit-chat that I usually engage in before the interview proper. Here, listen to that. Now, that said, I think, though it's not, this is not necessarily true, I think I may have found a small mistake, but it could be the circumstances are such that it's not a mistake. Shall I tell you? Please do. Uh, you talk about your cousin who was killed by a train. That's true. And you say leaving his wife a widow and his children are orphans. Aha, uh-huh, I can see this coming. But it's possible that he had a separate wi- wife and family. He left his children half orphans, you are correct. He left his children fatherless, I guess. If that is the worst thing in my book, it's not a bad book. Well, if it was, then Giridharadas wouldn't be so emboldened as to argue in a tweet thread accompanying his review that, quote, we need to reconsider the 30,000-foot book as a genre. It is a dated concept of a big book a genre that tries to turn mansplaining into literature. There are exciting new kinds of books being written like Jill Lepore's These Truths. Well, Jill Lepore, past just guest also, did in fact write a great book in These Truths. A new kind of book? I don't know. I think it's in many ways a very old kind of book, which is to say well-researched, well-reasoned, and well-argued. The book upheaval was, I have to say, less so on all three counts, but it's still valuable. And to reconsider the very idea of the big swing, the framework, the way to see history as thesis, I do think that would be a loss. I also found, not to nitpick the nitpicker, I found a number of the Giridharadas quibbles to be venal, not mortal sins. For instance, the part I read about Aussie rules football not being played elsewhere. If Diamond had said it wasn't played professionally elsewhere, he'd be in the right. Or let's take a couple of these other passages. Giridharadas writes, quote, Diamond says a 1976 terrorist attack in Washington, D.C. targeted a former Chilean official was, quote, the only known case of a foreign terrorist killing an American citizen on American soil until the World Trade Towers attack of 2001. And Giridharadas points out, oh, well, what about the World Trade Center attack of 1993? But let me read the actual passage from the book that I read. So maybe it changed since the version or the galleys that Giridharadas read. Quote, what was until the World Trade Tower attacks of September 11th, 2001, the only terrorist political killings of an American citizen on American soil. Now, because of the word political, you could consider the September 11th attacks on the Pentagon being a political attack and the rest of the September 11th attacks and the 1993 attack, not political. So in other words, I don't think that that was an incorrectly stated fact. Here's another thing that uh, Giridharadas points to as incorrect, that Diamond refers to Lee Kuan Yew as, quote, Singapore's prime minister, even though he no longer occupies that role, not least because he's dead. All right, I'll read to you from the book where that phrase, Singapore's prime minister, the only time it exists, here it is. Another big cause for optimism is Japan's track record of patience and ability to recover from failure and defeat, as acknowledged by Singapore's Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew. Huh. 
Does that indicate that Diamond thinks that he's still the prime minister and not dead? I mean, if I said another great player who never won a title was Chicago Cubs shortstop Ernie Banks, am I implying that Ernie Banks is currently the Cubs shortstop and in fact alive? Gerardardas takes issue with Diamond's claim that Germany has become more socially liberal, quote, there is no spanking of children. In fact, it's now forbidden by law. I have to tell you, well, the truth is spanking is forbidden by law, but guess what? As with all laws, people break the law. I have to tell you, I didn't think that meant that you couldn't do a survey of the bottoms of German children and not find one that was spanked. I did think it meant that spanking was outlawed, which is an interesting fact for me to learn. And it was part of a larger, interesting and valuable point where Diamond was talking about the difference in the German counterculture of the late 60s, which turned violent, and the U.S. counterculture of the late 60s, which largely didn't. And Diamond argues that in the 60s in Germany, young people thought of their parents as actual war criminals, because in many cases they were, whereas in the United States, the hippies looked at their parents as the greatest generation, and so therefore tempers didn't flare quite so much. Now, I suppose a fact checker could call quibble on me because in America, there were violent days of rage and the weathermen and Patty Hearst and all that. But it is true that generally, it was less violent than in Germany. Gerard Aradas ruse generalizations. Gerard Aradas rebukes personal anecdotes. And Gerard Aradas regrets the very existence of the book Upheaval. And he does so by pointing to the more than occasional example of sloppiness as something that goes part and parcel with Diamond's race and gender. Quote, I know so many younger writers, especially women and people of color, who are smart, thoughtful, buttoned up, and pretty damn accurate, who would kill for an opening to publish a book with a serious publisher, who know in their bones that if they were ever this sloppy, their career would be over before it had even begun. And Giridaradas expounded on this online, tweeting, A woman I know, after reading the review, just texted me. It's not fair that men get to make these mistakes. I saw it every day. Men given a wide berth, the rest had to be unassailably excellent to get to the same degree of consideration. Maybe, uh, definitely, that definitely goes on. But it's also the case that plenty of women or people of color who commit the kinds of offenses that Diamond seems to have committed in this book face similar consequences, which is to say they keep publishing or having tenure or keeping their reputations. I mean, there have been cancellation campaigns against Jill Abramson and Amy Chua, they're still in their jobs. And then if you want to say, oh, women and people of color don't make these same kind of mistakes. I don't know. There's a supposed Cambodian anti-trafficking activist, Somali Mam. That was a big scandal. She seems to have made up a lot of her biography. There was the proved fabulist, Margaret Seltzer. It's more likely that Diamond keeps getting publishing contracts because he keeps selling books. And he keeps selling books because he has, in the past, provided excellent insights appreciated by the book-buying public. What a Pulitzer, in fact. Perhaps this will be Jared Diamond's last book. On the page, he is still engaging. In our talk, I found him charming. I also have an almost allergic reaction to arguing for a strain of thought to be put out of existence, 
as Giridharadas does with his criticism of the 30,000-foot book, especially as advanced by the old white man. The actuarial tables will soon render onto Jared Diamond the fate Giridharadas has in mind. But I think that will be at a loss. I recognize the value in Giridharadas' fact-checking. I appreciate being taken through the evidence he marshals in order to properly contemplate his thesis. And that's why it would be a setback and not an advance to imagine a world where Jared Diamond wasn't actively trying to do the same. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist, but you might know them from their role in a scurrilous Ronald Reagan rumor where he dubbed them future punks who don't always say no to drugs. T.J. Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. But does she realize Mr. Reagan paid for these microphones? The gist. We once led a cattle and refrigeration ring. You might know it as Baskin Robbins. Peru de Peru du Peru. And thanks for listening. Thank you.